As you have a seat, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. We'll be in Exodus 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 this morning. So Exodus chapter 7 through 11 this morning. I need to see a show of hands here. How many of you can have an older sibling, an older brother or older sister? Will you raise your hand really, really high, really high? I need, to, I need to see the younger brothers and the younger sisters in the sanctuary. I'm an oldest child here. You can put your hands down right here. So I'm an oldest here. I'm oldest of three boys, and I have two younger brothers. And so I am sure that you, the younger siblings, younger brothers, younger sisters, if there's one phrase that you wore out growing up, it was this, you aren't my boss. Uh, you might have said it this way, you ain't my boss. <laughs> you, you might have said, you can't tell me what to do. Anybody relate to that? Anybody ever told their older brother or older sister, you can't tell me what to do? Well, I, as the oldest brother, it never stopped me. I have never had a hesitation telling my two younger brothers what they needed to do, what they should do. And they would oftentimes respond to me, you aren't my boss. Uh, humans, we resist. At the very fiber of our being, we resist being told by someone else what to do. If you're a child and you're asked by your parents to clean up your room, do you really want to do that? The answer is no, you don't really want to do that. And you know something? You don't outgrow that either. When you go to work and your boss says, hey, I've given you the privilege, I've selected you to stay late and to help us meet a corporate deadline, it's in that moment that you grumble under your breath, why do I have to do this and why does she not have to do this? Why do I have to do this and why doesn't he have to do this? We resist being told what to do. And you, you know who really doesn't like being told what to do? You know who really hates, you know who really grates under their skin being told what to do? It's the people that, that are really, really powerful. If you can snap your fingers and people do what you tell them to do, when someone tells you what to do, boy, it, it, it is something that you resist. It is something that, that you hate at the very fabric. We are all like that. We don't like anyone telling us what to do. We just don't. We all are in agreement with that. You know who really didn't like being told what to do? The person that we meet as one of the main characters in the story of Exodus. He was a person. His name was Pharaoh. And literally when he snapped his fingers, what he wanted done was done. There was no one in that ancient Egyptian world that could tell him what to do. And so when he has this, this Hebrew Moses who grew up in, in the palace of royalty there alongside of him most likely, and he has his Hebrew brother Aaron come in and say, hey, my God, our God is telling you what to do. It is not surprising to us in Exodus chapter 5 that his initial response is, I don't know the Lord. I don't know who you're talking about. And I'm not going to let Israel go. You know what Pharaoh is saying? Who are you? Who are you to tell me what to do? In Exodus chapter 7, we discover that God is going to tell Pharaoh what to do. 
And he's the only one, the only true God who could tell Pharaoh what to do. And we're going to see how Pharaoh resists the hand of God upon him. We read starting in verse 1. Read along with me in your copy of God's Word. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. Your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel to go out of this land. That's what you're going to tell him. But, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, guess what? Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. How will I do that? By great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. What we discover in the chapters that are going to follow is God making good on his promise here to Moses. It it is the very inaction of what he says that he is going to do. We know them as the the ten plagues upon Egypt. These ten plagues upon Egypt are the way that God stretches out his hand. These are the signs and wonders that God does to show Pharaoh who is really in charge. To show the Egyptians who is really in charge. To show the Hebrew slaves who is really in charge. And to show you and me who still today is really in charge. We don't have hours before us this morning to be able to read the totality of Exodus 7 and Exodus 8 and Exodus 9 and Exodus 10 and Exodus 11. So so we hit a 30,000 foot overview of each of these signs, each of these wonders, each of these great acts of judgment that God enacts upon the Egyptian people to show who he is. The first is the Nile turning to blood. All of the water source of the Egyptian land is turned into blood, but guess what? Pharaoh does not let the Israelites go. The second sign are are frogs that will cover the entire land of Egypt. Pharaoh promises in light of what is happening here to let the Israelites go, but guess what? This is going to be a refrain. He changes his mind. The third sign are we see in chapter 8, verses 16 through 19, all of the dust turns to gnats which cover the people and the animals of Egypt. The Pharaoh does not let the Israelites go. The fourth sign, the first way that God, the fourth way that God is stretching out his hand as an act of judgment or that flies will fill the houses and the land of Egypt. Pharaoh again will promise to let the Israelites go, but he changes his mind. The fifth sign, the fifth wonder, are all of the livestock in the Egyptian land. They die in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Pharaoh, again, doesn't let the Israelites go. There are bulls in the sixth sign here that break about upon all of the Egyptians and their animals. And Pharaoh, again, does not let the Israelites go. Hell wreaks havoc upon all of those that are exposed, humans, animals. All of the vegetation, trees alike here, Pharaoh asks in this moment, in the seventh sign, he asks for forgiveness and he promises to let the Israelites go. But surprise, surprise, he changes his mind. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 20, we see that locusts is to devour every tree and every plant in the land of Egypt. Again, Pharaoh asks for forgiveness. And again, he, he changes his mind. He relents 
And ultimately, he does not let the Israelites go. He repents. He changes his mind. The ninth sign, the ninth wonder, the ninth way that God uh, stretches his arm out in that land of Egypt is darkness. Darkness overcomes the land for three days. Pharaoh promises again to let the Israelites go. But again, he does what? He changes his mind. The tenth is the death of the firstborn. Next week, we're going to look at that, the Passover exclusively. But I want us to ask the question here, what is the purpose? Why does God not just get to the point why, why do we have 10? Why do we have to have to, a leadoff hitter and a second and a third and a fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and bring it to that 10th, the, 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 really the, the cleanup hitter of all of these signs and all of these wonders that's going to bring about a, a breaking of Pharaoh's heart? Why do we get all of these here? And again, he tells us in chapter 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. It's a refrain. He picks it back up in chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all of my plagues on yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know what? That there is none like me in all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 16. Again, we have the repetition of this refrain. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name, do you get the repetition? My name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The purpose of all of these signs, the purpose of God stretching out his hand of judgment against Pharaoh, against the Egyptians, for the Hebrew people to see is to show it is a living, breathing uh, billboard of judgment. To show the Hebrew people, to show the Egyptian people, to show Pharaoh himself that there is only one true God, and that is the Lord, the God of the Hebrew people, the God of Moses, the God of Aaron. He is the only true God. And it's important for you to see just how the Egyptians would have seen this. It's easy for us to get a cultural distance from that, that worldview of the Egyptian people living in that day, at that time, that worshipped in this polytheistic way. Poly is many, theism is God. They worship many gods, a multitude of gods. And for the Egyptians, their worship of God was tied to the land. It was tied to animals. It was tied to insects. So there was a multitude of gods that they commonly worshipped, at the, at the start of their worship would be this veneration and deification of the Nile River. There's a god in Egyptian religion that was called the god Hapi, H-A-P-I. It was the god of the Nile. It was the god of the flood that would bring about the fertility of the land and ultimately the fertility of the people there. There was an old Egyptian prayer that we have found where people would go to the Nile River. They would bow down before the Nile and they would pray this, Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. So out of all the ways that God could get the attention of the Egyptian people, he strikes the Egyptian people at the very heart of a God that they worship, the God of the Nile. And even practically, 
The Nile River is their source of water. The Nile River is a source of much of their food for eating. The Nile River is for bathing. The Nile River is for the ebb and flow of everyday life there in the land of Egypt. And God, with a snap of his finger, says, no more. He doesn't make it murky. He doesn't put a stench upon it. He turns it to blood. And he shuts down the entire Egyptian region. Brings them to a standstill. A few weeks ago, on the midst of unprecedented weather patterns that came through Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi, all of us were watching as power grids were overloaded and there was darkness that comes upon the land in Texas and it shuts the region down. Life in every way is altered because of that. And, and really for us to be able to get a parallel, it is if God is shutting down the power region, but, the, but there's no way to boil water in, in that Egyptian land. There is no way for sustenance. They, they are in a lurch in every way. And it is God's way to say, hey, I know you come to worship here, but there's only one true God. I can turn this into blood with one word. The second sign is a strange one. It's frogs that inhabit the whole region. And it, it just seems, if you read it, and I do encourage you this afternoon to just start in chapter 7 and read through chapter 11 and chapter 12 just to see how God is using Moses and Aaron through each of these signs and wonders and Pharaoh's repetition, the insanity of his response here. And when you're reading through it, it's almost like a B-movie. You remember the 70s science fiction movies where you would have this infestation, you, you have a Alfred Hitchcock with the birds, and everything about nature just seems out of control. And this is what's happening. But we miss the importance of this when we don't understand that the Egyptians had a God that they envisioned had a, a head which was a frog. So the renderings of the Egyptian god would, would have the god as, as the head of a frog here. And so that god, Heket, H-E-K-E-T, that the Egyptians worshipped was the god of frogs. And so when God in the second sign says, all of the frogs answer to me, it is a way for Pharaoh to say, I'm not in charge here. It's a way for the Egyptian people to see somebody else is in charge. The fifth sign Livestock all across the Egyptian region dies. And again, we miss the significance of this without understanding that they worshipped a god, Hathor, H-A-T-H-O-R. The god Hathor, which was the goddess of love, and the renderings of this god in the Egyptian lore, again, have the head of a cow. And so they, they deify the livestock. And so in this fifth sign, this fifth wonder, again, we see that God is saying, the gods that you Egyptian people worship ultimately answer to me. There is no other God except for me. And what I say goes, and it goes across all of the land here. Now, Pharaoh's response. That's interesting, isn't it? Pharaoh's response to all of these signs, all of these wonders, to Moses' words, Aaron's words, when you're walking through Scripture, it's interesting. In chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, we read that God said to Moses, hey, I'm going to harden his heart. 
That's not a surprise. You remember in chapter 3 where God said, I need you to go back to Egypt? And Moses said, I've got all, there's a whole lot of reasons I don't need to do that. I'm not really slight of tongue. I stumble over my words. I'm a little bit nervous of how the people are going to respond to me. And God says, I'm going to send you a voice piece. He's your Hebrew brother, Aaron, and I'm going to be with you. But then God says this interesting thing when Moses is going back. He says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And so when we're reading through chapter 7 through chapter 11, it's interesting to see that after the 6th, the 8th, the ninth, and the 10th sign that God gives of judgment upon the Egyptian people, we read this refrain, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Clearly there, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Other times, in chapter 8, verse 15, in chapter 8, verse 32, in chapter 9, verse 34, we read, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So sometimes when we're reading through these judgments, we read, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Other times, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. When you're reading through this section of Scripture, starting in chapter 3 and then in chapter 7 and moving on, there's a whole other category. There's a third category that doesn't say Pharaoh hardened his heart, doesn't say that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it just simply says that Pharaoh's heart was hard. It's a description without causation. It's the reality without the source. So which one is it? Did did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? And the answer to that question, did Pharaoh harden his heart? The answer from the Bible is yes. Pharaoh hardened his heart. But also the question, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? The answer to that is yes. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now we read through this as finite humans seeking to pursue God in his word and we say, hold on. These are contradictory statements here. Either Pharaoh does it or God does it, but both can't do it because these things are mutually exclusive here. But what we discover in Scripture without nuance, without hesitation, without disclaimer, without footnotes, the Bible so clearly says that here at the center of this story is God's working and Pharaoh's responsibility. Pharaoh's actions and God's sovereignty are right here being played out. And we say, that doesn't make sense. Well, of course it doesn't. We have an infinite God working in his finite humans to bring about salvation. And there is something, no doubt about that, that is mysterious. And we have a word for that as Christians. And that word we need to dust off, we need to use more often, is called paradox. We don't need to be scared of that word. That word paradox means that there are certain things in Scripture that are scripturally revealed that is a mystery to us which seems contradictory. It seems incomprehensible, but it is revealed to us as true. We sing about this every Christmas. We gather together. And at the very heartbeat of our Christian faith, we we sing veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail thy incarnate deity. Jesus is 100% man. 
He's 100% God. The math doesn't work. We, we want Jesus to be 50% God and 50% man, and we got 100% God, man. But the answer is, is that Scripture tells us he's 100% God. He's 100% man. It is contradictory, it seems, but it is not a contradiction. It is a paradox. It is beyond our human, in, our finite minds to be able to fully understand. So Pharaoh refused to listen to God because of his own own choices. He hardened his heart. He was sinful. He was rebellious. Those were his choices, but also equally, Pharaoh refuses to listen to the Lord because the Lord hardens his heart. So Pharaoh is responsible for his actions, and God determines his actions. This, my friends, is a paradox. I love the way Tim Chester says this. Pharaoh freely chooses to do what God has freely chosen that he would do. Can I say that again? Pharaoh freely chooses to do what God has freely chosen that he would do. So in the midst of this, we ask the question, why? Why the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Why the ten signs and wonders? And the answer to this is not a paradox. It is so purposefully clear to us. The purpose or the clear workings of God to reveal to the Egyptian people, this is who I am. And to save the Hebrew people out of Egyptian slavery. They've got over four centuries, 400 years of being under the cruel, tyrannical bondage of Egyptian slavery. And the way that God is going to get them out of this surprise isn't that Pharaoh says, you know something, that's a good idea. My entire workforce, I'll see you later. That's not how it's going to happen. God has to break the heart of Pharaoh and he reveals to the Egyptians and he reveals to the Hebrew people alike, this is who's in charge. And it's an interesting thing. We're going to get to it later. But in chapter 12, verse 38, when the Hebrew people are leaving Egyptians, the Egyptian land, guess who else is in the crowd? It's not just Hebrew people. That there were Egyptians that through God's judgment begin to see there is only one true God and he's the God of the Hebrew people and so we're going with them. So these judgments are both God's revelation to his people and they're the instrument of God's salvation for his people. Now, it's 1137. This is a heavy message for us to be able to consider. It's a message that is true, but it is a message that defies easy cliches. It defies feel-good sort of illustrations because it's beyond our illustrative imagination. I mean, we're talking about the infinite things of God here and how he relates to us as finite humans. And what we need to understand is this isn't a puzzle that we have to figure out, but it is the truth that we bow before and we say, you are God and we're not. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And this is true for the salvation of the Israelites, and it is true for the salvation of any person who trusts Christ as their Savior. It's an infinite mystery. Now, when we look at this, one of the things, 
that I think we need to be reminded is when we think to ourselves, well, how does this intersect with your life and my life? What does this have to do with my life? I think it has a lot to do with your life. It has a lot to do with your life. I remember so vividly, and so many of you do, after 9-11 and the Twin Towers and the falling of those towers and the terrorist acts upon American soil, the grief that gripped our nation. And, and so quickly afterwards, there were, there were uh, religious leaders, pastors even, uh, theologians that spoke up on, on national uh, sort of uh, broadcast to say, this is exactly what is happening. This happened because God is judging America for, and they had a whole list of sins. I was living 60 miles away from New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina swept through and the devastation that it wreaked upon the city of New Orleans that, that still has ramifications even today. I remember so quickly, just like 9-11, that there were pastors that wrote out editorials that were so clear. God calls this to happen because of the sins of, and they were very, very specific, the sins of, of the city of New Orleans. And you know why we know what God is doing to the Egyptian people. Do you know how we know that? Church, he tells us in the Bible. He tells us in the Bible. But do you know what he doesn't tell us in the Bible? Why every natural disaster happens in the year 2021. He doesn't tell us in the Bible why every specific event happens in your life and in my life and what we see on television. He just doesn't tell us that. And so what God doesn't tell us in his word, we need to be very careful to not put words in the mouth of God that are not his words. So strange. In the year 2021, we can spend so much time shouting as Christians about what God has not revealed in his word, and we somehow are silent about what he has revealed in his word. The strangeness of the day, the strangeness of the time to be so timid about what he has revealed between Genesis and Revelation, and to be so confident and at times arrogant about what he is doing around us and through things. Listen, this is a phrase that you have permission to say, I don't know. I, I don't know. We, we've experienced a year of COVID. And there are a lot of pastors who can tell you exactly why God is causing that and the judgment, and they have a whole list of sins. But I'll tell you, I don't know. But this I know, that he works all things together for those that love him or are called according to his purpose. And that includes even the devastation that has been wreaked upon our world and many families over this last year. I'm sure of that because God's word tells us that. So let's be humble and be silent where we need to be silent and sure and certain where he is revealed in his word. Another thing that I know is that Pharaoh's not with us. He's dead and gone. But his spirit, it sure does live on. I mean, the, the spirit of Pharaoh is alive and well in your heart and my heart. 
The spirit of Pharaoh is alive and well in the heart of every Christian and non-Christian alike. We, we are just like Pharaoh in the sense that Pharaoh's response to Moses and Aaron under the word of God through them was, who is this Lord that I should obey him? Pharaoh's response is, he can't tell me what to do. And don't think that your actions and your posture and the way you're living your life cannot be inspired by the very spirit of Pharaoh where we live our life saying, who has the right to tell me what to do? You know what Paul says? Our Kalai choirs, they sung about this so beautifully. Paul told us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has told us that every king, every president, Every leader, every CEO, every billionaire will acknowledge, just like you and me, every you and me, will acknowledge who ultimately is in charge. Now the question is, will we acknowledge him by bowing to him here on earth, or will we bow to him in eternity? We all will bow. Every person created in his image will ultimately come to that place where they realize who truly is in charge. And my question is, is are you living? Are you living a life that acknowledges who truly is in charge right now? It's on my bucket list. I've been to the UK, but I've never been to Buckingham Palace. So my bucket list. So then I want to get to. I've been thinking this last week about the Queen of England and think about how the Brits uh, kind of see her as a figurehead, prestigious figure, no doubt. I mean, looms large, uh, really larger than life. Prince Andrew and sort of his health ailments are upon the CNN scroll and the Fox News scrolling under the, what you're watching there. And so, so they're, they're upon our consciousness that there's this huge palace and staff and everything about it looks so powerful. And here you have a person who literally can snap her fingers and have servants upon servants do her bidding, but she can't vote. She has no veto power. So her power is symbolic. She is the queen of England without the ability to really vote or have a veto say. And what, what her role is, and that governmental system, we certainly can relate to with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Just think about your life. We can give God verbal recognition. We can pay homage to Him by coming here. But if we're not careful, what we're doing is purely symbolic. That when our, when our feet hit the rubber and the concrete of Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, who has veto power? Does He have a vote? 
Does he have a vote in your work life? Does he have a vote in your thought life? Does he have a vote in your finances? Does he have a vote in your family? The question is this, who's in charge? You or him? Are you living your life as if you are the king of your own kingdom? Are you bowing before him as the king of kings and the Lord of all? Who, my friend, is in charge of your life? This is the question Pharaoh had to answer, and it is the question that we have to answer. Who are you answering to? Are you considering what his word says? Are you asking him for direction? Are you obedient to his voice and his will and his way in your life? Are you like Pharaoh resisting his word and his way in your life? My question is this, who is in charge? You or God? Let us pray. In the silence of the sanctuary, we must acknowledge that there's only one true king. And maybe you're here today and there there are portions of your life that you have quarantined from his will and his way. You've set apart. There are areas of your thought life, there are areas of your work life, there are areas of your family life that he doesn't have a say in. And maybe even right now, before we sing this song of response, that that you would just admit this to God. You would confess to Him that even this last week, even this morning, in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions, they all displayed that you were in charge. Maybe today, you bow before Him reminded that he and he alone is worthy to answer to.